You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. Here in the UK, the furor of the new coalition government's plans for the NHS in England continue. Approval or objection to the White Paper's proposals, giving GPs control of an £80 billion commissioning budget, scrapping strategic health authorities and primary care trusts, are splitting people into two factions those who believe that market forces and external competition will be good for healthcare, and those who think that you cannot turn patients into commodities and capitalism has no business in health. The plans for the future of the NHS include any willing provider, meaning that the private sector will be able to bid on an equal footing with NHS hospitals to provide services. To try and keep things equitable, Monitor, which currently oversees Foundation Trust, will oversee all competition within the NHS. In this week's podcast, I'll be speaking to leading commentators from both the pro and anti-market camp. First of all, Jackie Davis, who is the founder member of the Keep Our NHS Public campaign. As the name of her group would suggest, she's firmly against any private sector involvement in the National Health Service and has written as such in a feature online this week on bmj.com. Later, I'll also be speaking to Julian Legrand from the London School of Economics, who firmly believes that market pressures can help make healthcare more efficient, safer and cheaper. But first of all, Jackie. So Jackie, for a start, as well as being a campaigner, you're also a radiologist and work in hospitals. Lots of this white paper and lots of its coverage is about GPs. Um, They'll be the ones with the £80 billion budget. Do you think hospital doctors are jealous of that? I'm sure that they shouldn't be jealous. I think we should be deeply suspicious as hospital doctors that we don't get a mention in this white paper because the real motif of this whole uh, paper is competition. And one of the things the GPs will have to worry about is how they're going to work with us while the pressure is on them to look outside the NHS for the care that they get. I also think that uh, GPs should be very worried about this white paper because uh, those of them who want a commission are naturally pleased that they're going to be given the budget and that this layer of bureaucracy, which has been such a dead hand on their work in the past, the PCTs and the SHAs, is going to go. But we know from looking at the polls that the majority of GPs aren't really interested in doing this, that they will hand it over to the private sector, which is set up, of course, through the FESC organisation to take this on. Um, And in that case, we will see the invidious situation of the private sector holding a great deal of NHS money to buy care from the private sector under the any willing provider uh, agenda. And that will, of course, be like having the thieves in charge of the jewellery shop. Um, we fear that their relationship with patients will be compromised because they will, of course, uh, be given the money at a time when there's going to be swinging Uh, cuts, which have, of course, been called efficiency savings, but uh, to save £20 billion on a budget of £100 billion is going to be very difficult. So not a coincidence, I'm sure, that the NHS budget uh, was held by the politicians in times of plenty and is now going to be given to primary care in very tight times because not only will they take on the money, but they will take on the responsibility for the cuts and closures of services Okay, I mean, talking about cost there, one of the things that's that's in this is uh, an idea of a best price. So hospitals will be competing against each other to provide services. And the idea behind this is that you might end up with, with specialist centres, say, 
somewhere that specializes in hip operations and can do it for less money and more efficiently, um, better patient outcomes than than another hospital, and then therefore they will will get that business. Now, if it's costing less and you're getting good patient outcomes, is that not a, a good thing? We've already been down this path with ISTCs. Um, it's interesting that when the government first brought in payment by results, uh, they said, well, of course, that this this won't be about competing on price. And it hasn't taken very long for it to devolve to exactly that competing on price. And the best practice tariff is weasel words for the cheapest um, way you can do it. Now, if you set up a unit that does nothing but... Uh, hip replacements, then you may have very low overheads if you're the private sector. You may not run an ITU, for instance. So you may send your complications to the NHS, who will still have to be running their ITU. Um, you will be cherry-picking patients, which the uh, private sector's done all the way along the line. You don't want to see patients with comorbidities or who don't fit your very strict criteria. You don't teach and train, or at least that, that has been the case so far. So you can do things much more cheaply, and that will become the best uh, the best practice tariff. The poor old NHS, in the meantime, has to run all the expensive practice, uh, the expensive um, services. It has to continue to teach and train. We hope, and so they won't be able to compete on price. And Monitor is now going to be there to oversee fair competition, as it's, it's said that the the private sector will be able to appeal to Monitor and say it's not fair. The GPs are referring preferentially to the NHS. Uh, we're offering things at a lower price. We deserve to get the work. So I think there are huge dangers in that as well. You know, hospitals are um, they're, they're complicated structures. And in the past, a lot of the um, sort of cheap and cheerful work, shall we say, subsidized the uh, expensive uh, and complicated work. And we know that once you pull out the stuff that subsidizes the more expensive work, then you, you jeopardize hospitals' ability to do things. This is opening the door for foundation trusts, autonomous structures, really lying outside the NHS now, becoming social enterprise organisations who will drop things where they can't make money because once they fail financially, they're finished. We're already seeing, for instance, that um, trusts have been told that if they admit more patients from A&E than they did last year, they will only be paid 30% of the tariff on those patients. So there are huge incentives to start looking at patients with pound signs attached to them, as opposed to according to their clinical need. I mean, it's been obvious from what you said in this interview, and uh, from the fact that you've got the QPR NHS public campaign, that you're you're not happy with the white paper at all. Now, as I say, it is a white paper. There's still time to influence it. It's it's not yet finalised. Um, what are you doing, and what's being done to to try and influence the the paper? I think the most important thing is to encourage people to understand what this paper means because, as usual, it's hiding behind um, all the rhetoric that we've been used to about patient choice, improving quality, putting GPs in the driving seat. So I think that needs to be pulled apart and exposed for what it is. You know, right through the middle of this white paper is stamped like Brighton Rock, commercialisation and the breakup of the NHS. Once people understand that, I think there will be a general um, abhorrence of what's being foisted on us. This is purely an ideological move. We don't need another reconfiguration. We've had 15 in the last 30 years. They cost a lot of money. They don't work. They're never assessed. And while they're happening, 
the NHS is plunged into despair and disarray. So we don't need this and we need to explain to people why we don't want it. There will be uh, a getting together of everybody who cares about the health service. The NHS Together campaign ran under the last government, but I understand that Unite has now taken the lead and has uh, today released um, a press statement saying that they're starting a campaign Unite for the Health Service, I think it's called. And I think many people will start to gather under that umbrella and to campaign against this. It's desperately important. Are you entirely against market forces within the NHS? Do you think it should go back to the, the, the top-down structure that it was when it was envisaged? A lot of GPs have made GP commissioning work in the past, made it work for patients by working together within the setup of the NHS. But to set it against the background of market pressures is, is, is going to really make it very difficult for GPs to make it successful. A market structure in the NHS, of course, Keep Our NHS Public believes that the market structure of the NHS is not appropriate. You know, healthcare is not mobile phones and toothpaste, and you've got to have a much more coordinated approach to healthcare. We know that once you start having healthcare delivered by competing companies, the price goes up, uh, the quality goes down, and health inequalities widen. And it's really a mystery about, as to why politicians keep pushing this agenda. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Jackie. As I said at the beginning, views on this are highly polarised. We've heard one pretty extreme view of what should happen at the NHS there. To hear the alternative, I've come to one of the spiritual homes of the market, the London School of Economics, to meet Professor Julian Legrand. Julian has been intricately involved in bringing market forces to bear on the health service, and even advised former Prime Minister Tony Blair back in 2005. So Julian, for a start, lots of people are worried about introducing competition to the NHS. Um, what's, what's the point in doing it? Why, why has this been such a, a big agenda? There are a number of ways to run a health service. One is the so-called trust models. It's where you trust the doctors, nurses and so on, hand it over to the professionals, let them get on with it. Of course, the doctors like that, and understandably, everyone likes to be trusted. Government's view is, and for some time now, that, that actually, at the end of the day, it doesn't work. It, it, what it's assuming, of course, is that everybody working in the health service is a public-spirited altruist, uh, that their only concern is with the welfare of their patients, uh, and not at all with their own self-interest in any form. Uh, now, we know that's not true. And of course it's not true. I mean, nobody is a perfect altruist. We're all a mixture of public spiritedness and self-interest. But the trouble is that the result of that, the self-interest sometimes dominates. So that was the result we got for very long waiting lists prior to 1990s. Uh, even now in Wales and Scotland, where they're relying on the trust model much more than we, than we do in England, you're getting very long waiting lists, um, you're getting low productivity, a whole range of areas. So government feeling that that didn't work moved to another model, which you might call the mistrust model. And the mistrust model was targets and performance management, where you set lots of targets uh, and you tell people what to do. Well. That sort of worked. There's no doubt that it improved a range of things, but I think most people, including me, I may say, feel that in the long run, that is not the way to run a health service. I don't think you can mistrust professionals to that degree. So what do you do? Well, can you build in some system where you've got some sort of incentives that appeal to both the self-interest and the public spiritedness, but appeal to both of them, don't drive people in opposite directions, uh, and 
create a high quality service with its incentives built within it. Competition is one way to do that. Um, and um, there's some evidence that it works, that actually if you increase competitive pressures, you don't necessarily drive out public spiritedness. You've still got people who want to do a good job, uh, but it also appeals to self-interest. Um, and that te often tends to deliver rather good services, high quality services at a relatively low cost. Yeah, and you mentioned there the evidence. Yes, uh, there are two pieces of research using similar methods, similar data, and thank goodness for social sciences coming out with similar results. Those results show that hospitals in more competitive areas that are subject to more competitive pressure, in other words, have actually successfully improved a range of quality indicators, including such things as um, post-operative mortality and so on, more than hospitals working in non-competitive areas or less competitive areas. Okay, well, that's you said they're working in areas where there is competition, so say in, in Bristol or London or something like that, where there will be multiple hospitals, multiple providers working against each other. If you're in an area, say in Venice, where there's there's one hospital, um, will how will competition work in an environment like that? Well, the first point to make is that uh, important as the people are who live in Inverness, there aren't very many of them. Um, Ninety percent of Britain lives in a, an urban area. But we don't quite realise how urbanised the country is. There was an interesting piece of research again done by Carol Proper at Bristol before all this internal market stuff started. Um, what that showed was that something like 90% of the population lived within, within one hour's travel time of uh, 100 available and unoccupied NHS beds. Uh, about 75% lived within an hour's travel time of 500 available and unoccupied NHS beds. Now that shows, this was at a time of enormous waiting lists and so on. It showed just how badly we were using the health system uh, under the old system. Uh, but what it also shows is that actually most people, the vast majority of the population, actually do live in areas that are pretty competitive or at least where the potential for competition. Of course there are areas, rural areas and so on, where uh, it's impossible. Um, and in those areas, I think the answer is probably some kind of franchising. So you actually have uh, you, a firm or a group of a social enterprise can run a hospital, say, for five years, and then they, then they have to renew their contract, and then you have bidding for that contract. This is called competition for the market rather than competition within the market. But there are ways of dealing with it uh, along those lines. Okay. Now, there's going to be a tension between providers and people they're providing for. Is there an ideal balance between between users and providers that will make the market most efficient to the best for people? Well, here it's useful, I think, to refer to the experience of GP fund holding, because that was our first time round where we first tried this business of giving GPs commissioning power. Now, many of us were very sceptical about GP fundholding scheme when it came in, um, but I have to say that it went on, we converted. And the reason was this, that um, it turned out that we, we thought that small GP fundholders would be swatted like flies by the big hospital trusts or whatever in the market, that the, the power imbalance would be too great. In fact, what we found was actually they, GP fundholders turned out to be rather effective purchasers. They were rather effective commissioners. They were able to switch uh, their uh, demand from different suppliers without necessarily destabilizing those big suppliers. And the, their 
the other commissioner that existed at that time, which we called health authorities, health authorities um, were rather ineffective purchasers, partly because they were so locked into the big providers. It was a little like the problem that if you owe a thousand pounds to the bank and you can't pay it back, you're in trouble. If you owe a billion pounds to the bank and you can't pay it back, the bank is in trouble. And that was the problem with those big providers. So I think the case is actually of a rather small consortia that will actually be able to play the market more effectively than bigger ones. How small? I think something like a population of about 100,000 would be, would be about right. That's a good, incidentally, that's the best number two for a risk pool. Because one of the big dangers with, a, with giving GPs budgets in this way is the problem uh, that a few expensive patients could bust their budget if it's very small. So you need to have a, li- a fairly sizable risk pool to avoid that particular risk. 100,000 about right, and 100,000 probably all right, about right for the size of the market. One thing that's going to have to happen if the market is to evolve fully will be consortia and uh, perhaps foundation trust, the hospitals will have to fail. How do you think that will be dealt with? Yeah. Well, there'll certainly have to be there'll have to be um, uh, penalties for uh, failure, uh, and uh, I do think this is this is a, a, an important problem, an important question. Um, there are various ways of dealing with it. Um, of course, they will. I mean, in a sense, there doesn't have to be the nuclear option of shutting them down. That may not be possible in many cases. Uh, you would have management changes. They will tend to lose resources, which some people will say, well, that won't that make it more difficult for them to do something. Uh, about it. Actually, interestingly, evidence from the states, although more in the education area than the health area, evidence from the states suggests that in this kind of situation, if an institution loses resources, the incentive it has to actually improve often outweighs the problems it has with resources. So actually, the poor institutions often improve faster than the good institutions in this context. But there will have to be some sort of failure regime, and that's an important element of whatever is being proposed by the government at the moment. Okay. Well, it seems that competition, first internally and now externally, is is something that's going to go ahead. It's the it is the future of the NHS. Do you think the way it's being done now is is the best way that 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 could be introduced? Well, again, we do have some experience of this because. Um, the previous government introduced the Independent Sector Treatment Centre programme, where you have private companies coming in. Um, now, these have been highly controversial. And in fact, the best peer review research says that they actually delivered um, uh, they delivered their uh, output at a quality that was as good as, if not better, than the NHS. They were also paid a bit more than the NHS, although, again, there's been a study that suggests that that actually compensates for the various subsidies the NHS gets via pension schemes and so on. Um, so, um, on the whole, that worked quite well. It has been criticised, though, because actually it, uh, it gave them guaranteed contracts, guaranteed provision. They weren't really operating in a highly competitive way. I think the lesson we learned from it is that, yes, new providers can come in, but they must be a level playing field. They must be able to compete in the same way um, within, with the NHS providers, not these guaranteed contracts and so on. Um, and then we'll just see what happens. And one of the criticisms of these independent treatment centres was that they, they cherry-picked the patients that they were going to to treat. Um, and that obviously makes the, the playing field unlevel for the NHS who, who had to then treat 
everyone else. Um, is it all down to sufficient monitoring or, or I mean, how will they... How well, will no, that was explicitly in their contract. They were supposed to take the simple cases. That was, that was Many of them actually would rather like to have taken more complex cases and did, and did began to argue for that. Um, it was actually, but it was explicitly in their contract. They were supposed to do the routine stuff um, and uh, to take, in a way, to, to relieve this massive pressure we had on waiting lists at that time for very routine operations and allow the NHS to concentrate on the more difficult, more complex stuff. Um, now, um, uh, again, as you say, that's been used as a stick to beat them with, I think, incorrectly, because actually that's what they were supposed to do. Um, but I do think that the new, if new ones come in, that they should, they should certainly be allowed to do more complex cases, partly because apart from anything else, it makes it much more interesting for the staff. The staff get very bored just simply doing endless routine cataracts or hernias. Um, actually, to have the opportunity to, to do a more interesting case um, is actually good for morale as well as for any other reason. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be finding out about how the weather can affect heart attacks. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.